Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And this is a very special episode of Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast because there's a pile of cookies in the center of the table, and I am probably going to be eating them throughout. So, sorry. No not worries. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Um, so, friend... Where are we starting today? What is astonishing well, I'm you? astonished by two things uh, today. Uh, number one, uh, we had a guest preacher on Sunday, Miss Cora Copeland. Uh, she's been worshiping with us uh, for, gosh, about two years now, I think. And so I invited her to preach on Sunday. No, no, no. She offered. She offered. That's right. She, she offered. She came to my office and asked, how can I serve? What can I do to help you? And in the moment, I didn't know. And um, um, the Spirit said, ask her to preach. And so I asked her to preach, and she responded yes. And she just let the Lord use her in a way that was powerful and um, moving for the people. She preached Ezekiel 37. And I, you've heard me say a number of times, you know, if you're... No, if, no, no. I mean, this is what Yolanda Hinton says. He says, if you think you're a preacher... And you cannot preach the resurrection and Ezekiel 37. You need to go find another line go of work. Home. Yeah, that's right. Well, she is called and gifted and she can <laughs> preach Ezekiel 37. And the, the beautiful thing about um, what she offered us by way of sharing the word of the Lord is that sometimes I work, I think, a little too hard to put the right uh, homiletical polish <laughs> on a sermon and she didn't do that it, but it was it was so powerful amazing and simple and she reminded us of things we already know um, and uh, especially that place where God takes the prophet Ezekiel to, uh, to a valley of dry bones and asks the question can these bones live again mm -hmm. and the prophet says well Lord you know so the prophet mm -hmm. can't say yes too quickly because that would sound kind of glib can't say no or else he would be denying the power of God, says, you know, God, you know what you're going to do. And so then the prophet's just in a place of listening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And God says to the prophet, prophesy to the bones. And I've never seen this before, but that's really kind of a ridiculous thing. For sure. Two dry, dead bones. Sure. I just want you to talk to them. Right. And then the miracle happens. Right. And so one of the things she said to us was that the thing God is asking us to do in this season is not something hard, not something that is so complex we can't understand. It's simple. The question is, will we be obedient to the thing God is telling us, commanding us to do? Right. And I think this is like so helpful because we don't understand what a prophet is um, because we don't read our Bibles. And so we have an idea i think from like bugs bunny cartoons that a prophet is someone who predicts the future and so what i mean which is not true a prophet is one who speaks for god that yes. is what a prophet does and so sometimes that entails giving a sort of if then um piece of wisdom 
but a prophet does not predict the future and that's really what you see in that instance is what a good prophet Ezekiel is that he might have expectations as a human or he might have expectations based on what he expects God to do because of his prior experience with God but what he knows is wisdom as a prophet or a person of faith is to is to be centered in your own unknowingness of I don't, my own experience doesn't determine what's about to happen and my, and my past experience with God or my expectations of God also don't always accurately predict what's going to happen. And so the wisest posture for a person of faith to center themselves in is God alone knows what God's will is in a particular situation. And yeah, so I, I, um, I really, I like that too. And I well, and by the time she finished, um, she ended on a note of hope. Like we left, not with a sense of okay, oh, the church is dry, things dry, things not going well. It's a hard season, but the sense of oh, that's right. We serve the God who makes dead things come back to life. Right, right, and. The way we serve that God is by doing things that seem ridiculous, foolish, and useless. And I think... And too small to really... To matter. Too to small matter. to matter. And yes. if we won't do those things, then we might be busy for God, and God and God's graciousness might even bless and anoint some of our actions. But if we want to be part of what God is doing in the world, then we can't despise doing things that look foolish. And I think we just want everything to have so much um, efficiency and to be utilitarian and we want to see an ROI. You know, we, we consider the opportunity costs of everything so much that sometimes we can um, opportunity cost ourselves into building a successful institution, but one that actually is God adjacent instead of God centered. So, yes. Um, so we're grateful for, um, Minister Cora Copeland, um, fantastic word on Sunday. That's the first thing that's astonishing me. The second thing that's astonishing me is that I think we mentioned last week that um, did, our I don't county... Think we did. did we didn't? I think well, we I did. Okay. Well, our county, uh, Mecklenburg County, um, has a, a mask uh, mandate and um, it includes churches and so a number of pastors in our city um, have had a negative reaction uh, to that or negative response to that um, mask uh, mandate. And one particular pastor, um, the pastor of Freedom House Church, uh, Pastor Penny here in Charlotte, um, made an Instagram post saying that their church would not wear masks and that uh, the government was messing with the church, with which they should not do. And just made a, a really strong statement about not wearing masks. And gave several interviews to local news outlets Correct. and said uh, that it was a violation in a secular sense of the First Amendment mm -hmm. and, you know, really framed it as, I am going to obey God and not humans, and that this mask mandate um, was, was the same as denying Christians the right to worship. And... And, and, you know, said our lawyers are ready, we're suing. And the last right. comment, which I thought was pretty remarkable, was don't mess with the church. Don't mess with the which, church. Which, I mean, again, I, that's easy to overlook because we live in a culture where people say outrageous things all the time. But when you think about 
sort of theologically what it means to end with an implicit threat. Like, don't mess with the church or else. Well, it's easy to say because the church in this country has occupied such a privileged place so that when there's criticism, it feels um, stronger than it really is. We've lost the sense of real persecution around the world of Christians in China or Indian in, or India or and or we've lost uh, our sense of history of of Christians being persecuted so that our the challenge of our privilege now seems like persecution or we respond to it like it's persecution well, and it's not and beyond that like the witness of the saints is when they I mean even if it were true and it was persecution even if it were true and it was some sort of law that forbade us from worshiping even if that weren't ridiculous because there's no way that anyone has the power to stop believers from worshiping like that's just not possible it's like i'm sorry aside it's what makes me crazy when people say that prayer has been outlawed in the schools i'm like friends prayer you can pray is a communion conversation between an individual and God, or a group of people and God. But there is no force in all of the universe which has the power to prevent anyone from praying anywhere at any time. So what you could say is we no longer have the ability to force other people to um, assume a posture of agreeing with There's our no prayers or listening to prayer. our prayers, yes. but no one can stop anyone from praying in church. But I mean, it's just not, it just betrays a misunderstanding of, we think that something has to be seen in order to be real. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus said, who said, if you're gonna pray, actually don't pray in a place where people can see and hear you because those prayers don't count. Go and do it in private in your closet when no one but God is aware of your praying and that is the only true prayer. And I would just argue that like, yes, the the freedom to assemble and worship in a community, that is that is essential, but A, it can't be stopped. And the whole witness of the of Christian history is it can't be stopped, even if it is outlawed. But even more fundamentally, it's not being outlawed. Um, so, but but even beyond that, what strikes me, I think, the most is this idea that even when persecution does happen, the right posture of response for a Christian is not threat of retaliation. Yes, and that's what that or else was. It was a threat that God would retaliate. And, and what, like strike them down, wound them, harm them, which is the antithesis. When you read of the, the book gospel. of Acts, when early Christians were being stoned for right. proclaiming Christ, what did God do? They were scattered, they were filled with the Spirit to continue proclaiming the gospel. Right, and First Peter says, always be ready to have an answer for the hope that is within you. And specifically says, like, even the moment that you're going to be murdered, you're, you're supposed to be ready to say why even this circumstance doesn't dampen your hope because of the promises of God that you believe in, which is not the promise that you're going to live healthy, wealthy, wise, and free and powerful on earth, but that you have a place in the kingdom which can't be taken from you by any power on earth. So like, always be ready to have an answer for the hope that it was, is within you. And the answer isn't or else, right? Like the answer isn't a threat. And so that's, I, I think, um, just listening to that happen 
and listening to that be the public proclamation of how people of Christ respond across many channels, like not just internally in the community, but it was an it was a public witness that was really troubling to me. Yes, and you know what's happening um, in our country right now is that those voices are the loudest, and those who are outside the church think that those voices represent the whole of the church. And Orthodox Christianity. They yes. think these voices are the biggest and the loudest and the most powerful and the most popular. Ergo, they equal authentic Christianity. And most of the time, they absolutely don't. Correct. So, um, last week, my friend and colleague, Kate, uh, wrote a piece in our city paper, the Charlotte Observer, um, responding to Pastor Penny. And um, the great thing about your piece is that, first of all, you identify with her. Number one, as a woman in ministry, as a woman in ministry serving multi-ethnic uh, congregations, but also to say to her, you are in Christ together, you are siblings, and if there came a day when the government truly was trying to shut down the church, that you would stand with her, and you made that very clear, mm -hmm. and your piece, those were the bookends of, mm -hmm. of your piece, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the middle, you stated very clearly your disagreement um, that Freedom House would, and, and other churches would not um, um, mask. And um, boy, uh, there was um, lots of response. Well, I just think what was helpful for me when I was thinking about how to respond was, I mean, the issue is masking. I mean, that is an issue in and of itself in that we are in a global pandemic and to not wear a mask is to increase the spread of this disease and its opportunity to kill people and destroy lives, which even if we didn't care about that, which is a, of course we care about that. If we don't care about that, then we're not following Jesus. But even if we just thought like, well, they're going to die someday, which seems to be the theology that's going on in a lot of churches, like everybody has to go. So if it's your time, might as well be COVID, who cares? Um, but even if we thought that, you know, for people who are dedicated to proclaiming the good news of the gospel and calling people to repentance and new life in Jesus, to be indifferent as to whether or not they would be killed, um, just, I, it seems crazy to me. Doesn't like fit. you, you must not believe in, in people discovering the gospel and becoming disciples of Jesus because that can't happen if they're dead. Which is the heart, which, which was at the heart of your piece was to say, hey, I'm not sure if you understand the gospel well, clearly. Well, right, because not only are you, you you're saying that action, that you're going to support that action, but you're explicitly saying it's our freedom in Christ that gives us permission to disregard this law, to wear a mask. And that's where I'm like, oh, I mean, and I don't say this lightly, but I don't know how any, any other way to say it. Like, you don't understand the gospel, right? You are clearly familiar with scripture and you know how to cite it in sermons and in arguments, but you know, so did the devil. Like, you don't understand the gospel if you think that your freedom is a freedom to please yourself 
at the expense of the life of, of your neighbor. neighbors. Like the whole point of the gospel is that we have the freedom to lay down our lives. We have the freedom in, uh, we are so free from any threat or fear or worry in this world that we are can be bold not in pleasing ourselves but in embodying the Jesus way which is why you know for someone at the point of martyrdom um, can give a reason for the hope that is within them and the hope isn't like God's gonna get you or frankly the hope isn't like God's gonna get me out of this the the hope is whether I live or die, I am the Lord's beloved, and you know I experience abundant life in Jesus here on earth, and even more abundantly on the other side of death. Right, so I don't have to be saved from the consequences of the persecution because I'm saved in Christ even through them, and which is why when the martyrs are martyred, that is a victory obviously not in the eyes of the world, but it is a victory because even the even the threat of death had no sway over them, which is why the early church was so attractive. Like you think, how in the world did the church grow in those earliest days when the church was under this, under the power of this um, Roman empire that saw it as, you know, traitorous and, and uh, um, deserving of a sentence of death. Like how in the world did people go, sign me up for that? Like what, what was the deal? The deal was everybody was living in so much fear that when they saw people genuinely full of joy, singing praises to God in the gladiator ring as they were being mauled by tigers, what people didn't think was, oh crap, I don't want that to happen to me. What people thought is, how in the world are these people so free? How in these world and the world are these people so unafraid? And what in the world do they have that is so precious to them that they are unwilling to trade it away for more life? And people thought, I don't know what that is, but I want it, right? And so we don't understand that because Christianity has been marketed to us as a way to win, Success. right? To win the American dream, right? Like live your best life now, right? I mean, it's just this idea that like Christianity is. I mean, you talk about this a lot, like the Red Bull that gives us wings. Like we're like ninety nine percent of the way onto a good life, and and Jesus is just gonna tip us over the top. But basically, like what Jesus is gonna do is help us make our dreams come true, and yes. that is not the gospel. The gospel is that. In Christ, when we join the life of Christ, we become part of the embodiment of God's dream of the redemption of the world being enfleshed in the world. And so we just don't, that doesn't market as well. And so that's not what people are selling. And, and you know, Pastor Penny is not, I'm sure, wrong about everything. Um, this is certainly not the first time that that particular congregation has been in the news, and it's not the first time that I personally have had an opinion about how they pastor their church. But I mean, I do recognize that, like, she's not worshiping me, she's not my servant. Whatever is happening is between her and the Lord. But then there comes a point when you're like, your misunderstanding of the gospel is so foundational. 
I mean, it's not adiaphron. You can't just be like, well, we believe in infant baptism and they believe in believer's baptism, but we all believe in baptism. Like, it is not inconsequential if you are baptizing people into a life of centering themselves and their preferences and comfort and privilege and telling them that that's what Jesus wants for them. You're, you're baptizing them into death and you are intentionally or unintentionally blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because you're telling people that that's what God wants for them, and it's not. And so all of those warnings that Paul has against false teachers, like, I mean, we've talked about this before, like when you're, when you're coming up in seminary and you hear them and you're like, oh gosh, like that sounds a little harsh. Like, are you telling me that like, if I preach a bad sermon on 3rd Timothy, that I'm gonna like be, I know there's no 3rd Timothy, that's the joke. You know, and I don't, I, you and I don't understand it. Like it just seemed really kind of scary and weird and mean. And now, after all this time, you're out here going like, oh, again, intentionally or unintentionally, people are really um, preaching false gospels and other people are believing them. And while I have great hope for God's ability to save regardless after death, right? I don't believe that God will allow someone to perish because they put their faith in Jesus, even though Jesus was presented to them in a flawed way. I do believe that there's death, right? There's death before death and that, and that's what's happening. And, and so there comes a point where you just have to say, you know, this isn't right. And that is, um, you know, I, I try to discern, I have lots of ideas and I try to run them through my discernment process, which includes private prayer, which includes reaching out to trusted people like my friend Yolando and being like, hey, I feel like I kind of want to do this. Does this seem in line or out of line, right? And so we had had some conversations about like, if I did it, what, you know, what would be said and how, you know, what's the point of it? Like what, you know, yes. um, so... I, I really, um, I just, I'm, I think that there's a, a natural and really healthy sense of you see something out there and you go like, well, everybody knows what I know, so I don't need to say it because everybody knows. And you're like, who am I to think? And then sometimes you've got to look and say like, well, but nobody is saying it. So, so maybe... It does need to be me, and you know, raging introvert that I am, that like, that is not a hardship for me. So I'm, I'm mainly just turning to my friends being like, I mean, I kind of want to do this. I'm a little suspicious of my desire. Can you just check, like, check yeah, me in absolutely. it? Absolutely, because yes, yes. I'm Because I'm not an introvert, and I, and I do like to be the center of attention, and I know that that is dangerous, and so... You're an introvert? I said I'm not an introvert. Oh, okay. right. Don't be cute. I said it. You don't have to. Jeez. Well, another helpful thing about um, that piece, and um, I think it uh, was spoken by um, Larry Reed, a radio show host in Atlanta. He said one, um, one white pastor calling out another white pastor. Um, I, I think that's the way mm -hmm. he put it. And uh, yeah, that's... That's really helpful because you just said, you know, there's some things that people hear in media or see um, and hear in social media 
And we think, okay, there's a whole lot of people who disagree with this, but no one says anything. And it's, I thought it was really helpful to have your voice because you and Pastor Penny, on a certain level, have so much in common. Correct. That was, your voice was the right one. Well, and I, I've been listening to, so I, I try and I do, you know, in social media and other places, try to follow and listen to a lot of black um, thought leaders, like, so pastors for sure, theologians for sure, and also just, you know, people who are working for justice and, um, you know, social, political change, and just, you know, to be in a posture of just listening, like, I don't comment, I don't argue, especially if something makes me feel uncomfortable, I'll go back and read it again, and just, like, what, what do I not know that it doesn't even, it's not even relevant whether or not I agree with it. Like, this is a person who is experiencing the world in this way and who thinks this way, and it's just valuable for me to know how this person thinks and just let myself be influenced by it. And 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 normally, once I get over my own discomfort, I'm like, yeah, I, I see that. And anyway, but I, I, I often hear these black thought leaders who say things like, hey, white people, you need to talk to other white people. Like quit expecting people of color to constantly be alone or in front in the work of advocating for justice and truth. Like if there's error within your community, um, self-correct, right? Like, and so I, for me, that was part of it. It was just saying like, I've specifically heard people, local leaders who I really respect say, hey, white women, this is what your demographic tends to do. So, so talk to each other, right? And so that that was part of it. It was just being like, I, I'm, I will, I mean, not astonished in a good way, but like obviously the level of reaction is remarkable, um, and particularly her reaction is um, remarkable, but not surprising. Um, but I, I do think that there are a lot of people who are in her sphere of influence who don't have a counter voice. And so I think it's helpful, even if that is rejected, I think it's helpful that it's heard. And there are other people maybe who are like one level out who, you know, maybe that's a seed to say, oh, wait, or, you know, that, that later on that you know, that's germinating and because ultimately that community looking from the outside in, and I know that the Lord is in every flawed and broken sin filled Christian community because there aren't any other kinds. Um, so I'm not saying the Lord is not in it, um, but it is not manifesting the fruits of the spirit. Um, I mean, I, 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 that doesn't give me any pleasure to say. I mean, it's not even because like, we also don't manifest the fruits of the spirit all the time, but like we're going after them. And, and if you're not even going after them, if you are, if what you are saying is we're the best and we're the only ones and you know, we are the powerful one. Like those, that's not, well, let's talk not. about Pastor Penny's <laughs> um, response for a moment. Um, oh, she was angry. Sure, which, well, I mean, fair enough. I mean, I too would be angry if someone said... Well, part of the response suggested that you had no right or that you were wrong 
in writing a public letter. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, there's just a lot about her response that was remarkable. The thing that surprised me the most is I did, without any expectation of it being fruitful, but I did reach out to her. Before the before article. Before I wrote the article. Mm-hmm. Um, because I thought, and I, I mean, I do believe that this was the Holy Spirit, like a nudge of the Holy Spirit, just being like, hey, even though you think it's unlikely that she would talk with you, and even though you feel that it's unlikely that she would at all be influenced by you, like the scripture mandate to go to a brother or sister privately is just clear. And so I did reach out and, and through a couple different channels to ask her if I could buy her a cup of coffee. And Which just... was mocked. Well, right. And that was the thing. Like I thought it was interesting that at the beginning of her response to me, she acknowledged that I had reached out to her privately and was like making fun of that, which again, like to me, I thought that that was such a gift that she, that she disclosed that because I think the one thing that you could say is, oh, it's unchristlike to have this conversation publicly without first trying to have it privately. And so the fact that she herself disclosed that I, I did try to have it privately with her, um, but the fact that you won't meet with me privately then doesn't mean that I'm never allowed to publicly respond to your ministry. And, and this is part of it, I think, you know, we are pastors and we stand up every week and say, this is what the gospel is. And that is, like, that's not private. I mean, it is inherently public. It's very public. And so the reality is anyone in the world is allowed to say, hey. I disagree. Right, like, this is, I think that you're misunderstanding the gospel. Like, if I don't want that, then I need to get out of the pastoring life. Like, I don't, you know, the gospel doesn't belong to me or to Pastor Penny. And so... We don't get to say, like, you know, there's no copyright here. Um, so it is it is appropriate when someone makes a public proclamation of the gospel for another person to engage with that proclamation, and particularly with the theological ideas that are at the foundation of it, which I, I worked really hard um, in creating the letter to be clear and direct and not center her feelings, but at the same time not attack her personally but to engage with the false ideas, um, the false understanding of the gospel as I perceive it. And so, I mean, I just thought it was really interesting to me that instead of hiding that I had offered to meet with her personally, that she that she began by acknowledging it and just kind of mocking this idea that like, oh, you invited me for your coffee prayers. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, because that's what what Matthew 18 says that we're supposed to do. And you were seeking to engage her in a genuine conversation. Sure. And like she, she is talking about like, she knows my motives and like, I don't know my motives. Like, I don't know what would have happened if we had had a conversation together. Like I might have decided, you know what? I want to make, write this article, but I'm not going to make it specifically about this church. Like I, even though I think the reality is also there are plenty of other churches in the city that are not going to follow the mask mandate and it, I didn't feel moved to write to any of them because they didn't go public and say, this is who I am and we're not doing it, right? So again, it's not a private decision anymore. It's not even an inter-community decision when A, your decision literally in a public health crisis affects everybody in the community. Like nothing that any of us do in private rooms is limited in its effect to those private rooms. But B, 
you know, you having, you're doing, I mean, and this is what, like, it used to annoy me in seminary that they would talk about, like, you're the neighborhood theologian and you're doing public theology. And I was like, I don't even know really what that means. But, I mean, when you go on the news and say, we're not going to follow this mass mandate because our freedom in Christ compels us to defy it, that's public theology. And so then it needs to have, you know, we need to have a public discourse about what that means. So... Yeah, because again, there are a small number of Christian voices that are seemingly representing the whole of the church, mm-hmm. and they do not. And my concern is that there are so many people who are outside of the right. church who are listening to those voices and saying that's what Christianity is. And I don't want anything to and do I with it. I don't want anything to do with it. Like yeah. if Jesus says, I get to do what I want even if it kills my neighbors, I'm not worshiping that Jesus. One of the things I wonder is if a Pastor Penny had read your article and said to herself, you know what? Kate is right. If her ministry context would have allowed her repentance, would have allowed her to rethink, would have rela- would have allowed her to um, have a change of heart and mind. Um, if there's a place of compassion for me, um, in me, for her, it's how it's it's for leaders who are in that kind of environment and it's almost as if you can't rethink or change your mind or repent without losing everything well and i think we've talked about this before and i've been trying and, to think, and I think about of mars hill sure mm-hmm. and i think about this a lot is like how would i how would I, how can we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, create a culture that prizes repentance as a spiritual fruit? And I think, like, on the surface, you go, like, well, yeah, yeah, like, we would prize that. Like, if people repented, we would celebrate them and say bravo. Like, okay, maybe. But in order for that fruit to be born, to switch a metaphor, you would have to have a culture that A, welcomed and celebrated people in who needed to repent and like created the sort of space where people could be safe to be honest about what they think without being attacked or shamed or or tried to be controlled, right? Like you'd have to really do some things that I think in the eyes of a lot of people would be interpreted as condoning sin in order to create soil where the fruit of repentance could grow, right? And that, I just think, I mean, because I was thinking about that before, that... Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? Eat with sinners. Or like something like, I mean, one place that I think a repentance life flourishes is in 12-step groups. And part of that culture is calling people together and naming, you know, not their worthlessness at all, but their primary identity as someone who is powerless over Mm -hmm. the sin of addiction in their life or addiction in their life, which, I mean, is, and I mean, and what is true is that Bill W. took those 12 steps from the Christian tradition as this is the path through repentance to transformed life in Jesus and he just 
you know, specified them for, say, the battle of addiction. Like when I use the word sin, it's not a shame, blame word, but just a sin is a missing of the mark of anything that destroys life. And so I, I think that, you know, you can't have, you can't create a group where people can be transformed um, by grace and healed and, and, and into a life of recovery if you can't walk in the room unless you're already not a drunk anymore, right? Like you, you have a space where the foundation is if you are, if you are just, I mean, you can show up to the meeting under the effects of the, of your substance and you're not going to be thrown out. You're not going to be shamed and blamed. People are going to be honest with you in ways that I think can feel really painful, but the intent is not to harm you. The intent is to heal you. And there's no question of your worthiness and no question of your belonging, but there's also no false sense of like, hey, you're welcome here because we all have our ish together here and we're just here celebrating our own like wonderfulness. And, and so I think like in a lot of churches, we make it unsafe for people not just to be broken because even that language of broken like is really sort of passive, like I'm, but like to be a, a breaker, right? And so to say like, honestly, my intention in writing that letter was not to distance myself or differentiate myself from Pastor Penny, but to really say like, look, we're the same. Um, and I'm not better and I'm not worse. And you're wrong. And that doesn't mean that I would say like, well, you're garbage and you have nothing to do with me. Like we're in the same body. And so if you, if, if somebody belongs to you and they are in danger, you speak a word of warning and correction. And that's not a sign of, I mean, I think just a lot of the feedback is like, well, that was wrong and unchristlike to have that conversation. And I just think that that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be Christ-like because Jesus told people the truth when... In public. In public particularly people who had positions of power and authority and influence, and he would correct them and say to the Pharisees who were not terrible people, right? And I don't think that Pastor Penny is a terrible person. I just think she's terribly wrong about this. And the reality is I think that, you know, it would be foolish for me to think that there will never be a time in my walk with Jesus where I will not be terribly wrong about something in a way that matters. And what I need is for people to tell me the truth. Mm. And again, like, is it good to have some relational equity when that truth happen, telling happens? For sure. But, I mean, and this is where I think we're plugging into that place of sympathy and, and real pity, is I think she's stuck in a system where no one can tell the truth, right? Like, no one can say, hey... Like, where does your accountability come from? And that's like the whole Mars Hill thing that it's just so successful. Because as soon as you say, hey, I have a question, it's attack. Right. You, you receive an attack. I remember, um, you know, I used to preach um, the rapture as, you know, the trumpet sounds, Jesus comes, and all the Christians get, you know, beam me up Scotty to heaven and... Boom, we're out of here. See ya. Peace. 
Now I preach the rapture as trumpet sounds, Jesus descends, uh, the saints are caught up to meet him, but he continues downward to the earth. New creation creates a new heaven and new earth. He recreate. Mm -hmm. It's not we're out of here to heaven. It's no Jesus is coming to restore creation, to redeem creation on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, and mm -hmm. and, and when I first started preaching that, I had a number of people call me, want to meet with me. They were. Their feelings were hurt, they were angry, they were confused, they wanted to distance themselves from me, they questioned my call, they mm -hmm. questioned my um, ability to rightly interpret the scripture, and, um, and I, I would take them to text, like, you know, when Jesus says, um, you know, when the Son of Man comes... Uh, one will be taken mm -hmm. and the other left. It will be like in the days of Noah. One will right. be taken and one left. Well, um, in the Left Behind series, right, to be taken is to, to be, be saved, good. right, yeah. taken to heaven. But in the days of Noah, if you were taken, you were taken in the flood. If you were left behind, you were left behind in the ark, right? right. And so, um, and, and Jesus says when he comes, it, it'll be like that. So in retrospect, I can see that um, people were not only wrestling with the theology and, um, you know, the question of biblical interpretation, but also with the question of if my pastor has to rethink um, his biblical interpretation, rethink theology, then what about me? And so it becomes easier at the end of the day for both pastors and church members to resist correction, to resist well, changing. And and it, it's one thing that's so seductive about the false understanding of pastor as a proxy for Jesus, right? Like if I just say like, okay, well, my pastor is essentially standing in for Jesus and that means that all I need to do is just conform to what this person says and thinks and teaches, right? And that's, that's the end of my responsibility. That is has a sort of subtle seduction to it because it releases you of all obligation to work out your faith with fear and trembling. But if we understand a pastor correctly and, and the culture of the body of Christ correctly, which is not a hierarchy, like the body of Christ is anti-hierarchy, we are formed in the image of the triune God. So this mutual interdependent flourishing, right? Where it's not one person is more important than another. I mean, this is Paul's metaphor of the body that like there's difference, there's diversity, but there's a, there's a, we are like an Ubuntu quality of like, I am because we are and needing one another and being different. Like if we understand that the pastor has a specific role to play and specific responsibilities, but isn't walking on a quote higher plane or, or in some way, you know, having a different level of spiritual elitism than anyone else, then all of a sudden when the pastor says, actually, I you know, was influenced by this person's teaching and by this understanding. But as I continue to grow and learn and listen, the Holy Spirit has shown me that this was wrong. And this, and now this new way is, is what I, where I'm discerning the spirit that becomes not a weakness, but a strength and a way of modeling of, Hey, our faith is not in our faith. 
Um, we don't believe in the correctness of our belief. Our faith is in God. Our faith, you know, we put our trust in every, uh, you know, the essence of who God is and how God's plans for the world and for us individually can be trusted and they're good. And so that is just a different, is a different model of understanding. Um, and if churches don't have that, if churches are asking their pastors essentially to function as demigods, that's um, really unhealthy for the church and for the pastor. It's dangerous for all, yes. Um, and we were talking before we started. And let me say, if you hear a change in audio quality, it's because we've been recording this whole podcast and I realized that our primary mics were off. And after I rebaptized Kate, that's true, we spilled a whole glass of water, ice water across the table and onto me. And so there's just a lot going on here today. Now there are children in the house, like many. Many different things can happen, but um, so you were yes. saying. Well, I was just saying, and I was thinking about this um, as we were talking earlier today. I'm reading a book right now that I really um, am being blessed by. Um, it's by um, Sharon Hottie Miller, who also wrote a book that I really was um, was really beneficial to me called Nice, and it's just talking about how God calls us to more than niceness, which I, remember that. I leaned on a little bit this week as I was processing things. Um, but this new book, her latest book is called Free of Me, and she's just writing about how there's just been this subtle um, or not so subtle shift in American Christianity where we are encouraged to put ourselves at the center of our faith. So we sort of and we interpret everything through the lens of like, well, how does this affect me? So we talk about like my identity, like, you know, let me live my life based on my identity in Christ, which to live your life based on your identity in Christ is different than living in Christ, right? And just this idea of like, oh, God has a plan for me. Well, that's not untrue, but also the center of my life isn't discovering God's plan for me. The center of my life is God. And I was just like the connection for me um, is I was thinking about the witness of um, Paul and the his Damascus Road transformation. Uh, I mean, for people who are not um, as familiar way, uh, almost at the very beginning of the birth of the church, after the death of Jesus, there is a, a Pharisee who's um, so a, a religious leader in the Jewish tradition, um, one of the parts of the body of Christ who, who persecuted Christ, um, and, and this man's name was Saul and he was just very gifted and very zealous for God. And the way he understood his faith, um, was that, um, while he was waiting for the Messiah, when Jesus came, he didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah because Jesus didn't conform to the expectations of the Orthodox authority faith of, of that day, right? Jesus challenged all sorts of things. Um, although it was in fact, Jesus who was righteous and not the traditions. Um, and so Paul, you know, had come up, um, had met God through the context of his culture and, um, the religious institutions of his day. And he had risen to prominence and authority in those religious traditions. And he had a lot of zeal for the Lord and he understood faithfulness to be persecuting those who were following Jesus because according to Orthodox faith of the day, these people were blasphemous because Jesus claimed to be the son of God and God. And also the idea that God's Messiah would be crucified and shame and like all of these things were just um, so radically uh, against 
the expectations of not, you know, this wasn't, I mean, it was a fringe movement, right? Like the mainstream Orthodox Judaism did not recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of scriptures. And so Paul, you know, was just following what he knew and thought that he was worshiping God by um, arresting these these Christians and, and turning them over to be executed. And then, you know, famously in Acts 9, we hear the story of Paul on the road to a town called Damascus, and he had already sort of persecuted everyone he could persecute in Jerusalem and now was taking the show to Damascus and looking for believers there. And he was going to, you know, arrest them and have them killed. And then on the road to Damascus, he um, has this theophany, this God comes down and interrupts his journey and the dazzling of light and he goes blind and, you know, he says, you know, Lord, who are you? And, and God in this vision replies, it's Christ, the one you've been persecuting. And what is so interesting about that story that I was thinking about this week in context of everything that's happening and this book I'm reading is, you know, for all of Paul's flaws. I mean, that's to put a mild spin on it, a gloss, um, a generous gloss. He was flawed. He was killing people. But um, at the center of Paul's life was not Paul or Saul. It was God. And so when he had an unmistakable experience of God and God said, no, actually, I am Jesus, the one you've been, it, it was, you know, it was a process of transformation, but, but he was, he didn't resist that. Right. So, so even as mistaken and flawed as his understanding of God was, his heart for God was sincere and what he wanted was not to be right. What he wanted was to be righteous. Um, and so that's what you see in that story. And I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, what are our obligations to speak within the body of Christ when we see someone who is in error, there's a sense of pride that would cause us not to speak out, right? That we would just say like, well, this person isn't sincere and they don't really love the Lord. And, you know, maybe the Lord doesn't love them the way the Lord loves me. And so we, we, we tell ourselves that we're not engaging with that person and, and we, we act as though that's a virtue, but actually I just wonder a lot of the time if it's just actually our own manifestation of spiritual pride and taking someone seriously as a brother or sister would be to say, to impute the same motives to them that we do to ourselves, which is like, I know I'm not right about everything, but I'm really sincerely trying to follow Jesus. And so, uh, you know, when I'm walking in error, I, my friends would tell me and, and, you know, great goodness has come into my life through you know, people who have loved me enough to say, hey, Kate, this part of your life is seriously out of out of order. And I think, you know, when God is at the center of our life and not us as godly people, then we're a lot more open to, oh, here's a piece of information that causes me to radically reconfigure everything I know, but that's not so threatening to me because my faith wasn't based on the idea that I was a good Christian or an elite Christian or even a good person. My faith was based on the idea that God is a good God yes. and God's goodness was at the center of my life. And so that hasn't been changed, right? Like my understanding of it, my perception of it might have been shifted, but the foundation of God's goodness is not at stake. And if there is a piece of information that causes me in a moment like Saul to realize like, oh my goodness, and my very zeal for the Lord, I was working against the Lord. That doesn't, I don't need to resist that 
God's at the center of my life. And so when I'm now invited to graciously participate in following God, you can just follow. I mean, like Paul gets a lot of press for being an egomaniac. And obviously he was not a person with a small ego. But when you take another step back and look at it, you think like how humble must he have been to just say, essentially, I was wrong wrong and I'm going to devote my whole life now to being about the thing that I despised. And I'm not going to bury the story of how wrong I am. I'm actually going to center it because again, my life isn't about me achieving spiritual greatness. My life is about God's will being done on earth and I'm participating in that. And whatever role the Lord invites me to play in that, I'm happy to play. Yeah. I know you don't, love theology. I don't. <laughs> but I think Reformed theology is really helpful here because, you know, Reformed theology says that everything is about and for God's glory. Right. So when we look at our salvation, it's not that I became so wise, so smart, so enlightened that I reached out to God and God says, oh, Yolanda is reaching out for me. I think I'll save Yolanda. No, it's that in my utter helplessness, God in Christ reached out and saved me. And so my salvation says nothing about me and everything about the grace of God. So now when I'm at a place in life, when I see I'm wrong, I see I'm mistaken, I see I've taken a wrong road. I can turn, I can change, I can admit I'm wrong because I, I'm, I'm not at the center. Right. And I, I mean, you were saying, and we talk a lot of joke about like, I don't like to, I don't like to have abstract theological discussions, particularly if you're just arguing about some random inconsequential thing that some white man who lived 500 years ago said, like, I don't, I don't really care to have just an interesting conversation about the unfathomability of knowing God. Like, I don't care about that, but I do. I mean, I, I do want to think theologically. You should be more clear. I mean, you just beat around the bush. I, I, I wish you would just be more direct and I'll work say on what it. you really think. <laughs> I'll work on it. Um, but I do think that if we allow ourselves to be formed by scripture and we start to, we do start to think theologically about not an abstract issue or like, you know, how, how can I describe, you know, what does it mean that God is omniscient or, you know, what, what do I think about predestination or whatever? I, I don't care about any of that. But what I do care about is looking at the world that we live in and saying, what is the culture and what is the orthodox um, version of the faith? And what are the fringe versions? What are all these people screaming at me? And how can I think, um, and react not just to the loudest voice and not just despising the smallest voice, but have a process of, you know, sort of reasoning based on the revelation of scripture and, and based on my lived experience in communion with the Holy Spirit and based on the wisdom and witness of my community like, you know, well, you put all that together and that says discernment. Correct. And so it's not just a matter of, well, what will make me the most comfortable or what do I feel like doing today or not doing today or what would make me popular or unpopular. So, um, at any rate, it's been an interesting week and, um, I'm not sorry 
Um, I'm not happy that anyone would have been hurt, but I do know and appreciate just a lot of the reading I've been doing lately about boundaries and, you know, there's a difference between hurt and harm. And, you know, as much as I, as any human can know anything, I didn't harm anyone. And I do think that questioning assumptions is just healthy and that there's nothing about Jesus that is um, not glorified by honest questions. And um, when we stand up every week and proclaim the gospel, that's a public act. And when people take us seriously and engage with our proclamation of the gospel, that is, um, that's an honor and, um, it's not a cheap trick. And so I, you know, I said what I said. Mic drop. Well, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. uh, But, But yes. But what you highlight, at least for me, is that there is a real need for us us being pastors, and I guess the church in general, to have conversation with people, be engaged in relationships with people who are not in our theological, political, social, whatever camp. Right, and be, we yeah. just don't do enough and We of are the body of Christ. Yes. And so I'm going to have a conversation about ideas, and the reality is if the response to that is to call me names or to question my motives or, or to assign motives to me, I mean, there's nothing I can do about that except to say, that's not what I'm doing. I don't, I don't know pastor Penny. I don't assume it. I, I assume that she is being sincere, but that does not mean that she's correct. And, um, all things are not equal. And some of our, I mean, the gospel is power and how you use power matters. And we, we ought to know that. And you know, the example that I go back to all the time is, you know, when the devil came to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, he showed up quoting scripture. So not everybody who's quoting scripture is, is on the Lord's side. And that's not to say someone is worthless or or less loved or less fearfully and wonderfully made, but that is to say that we're all influenced um, by the powers and principalities of this world and kind of the less you can conceive of your ability to be influenced by those powers and principalities, probably the more vulnerable you are. And so, you know, that's why I just think that, you know, humility is our spiritual superpower. And that's why I think that having part of worship every week to be not just to glorify God, but to also confess our sin and frailty and to cry out once again for forgiveness and salvation and transformation that comes not from us, but um, from God. Like and that's, for help to get it right. Right. That That's just really important. And, and I promise you every week when I pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, I am realizing that I, I don't want any part of evil and I see a lot of evil in the world and I want God to save it from me. And also like, I need God to 
not lead me into temptation or not get me near temptation because I know that I'm weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just grateful for the hedges in my life. And, and one of the hedges in my life is the Holy Spirit and scripture. And the other is a community of real friends who, you know, will love you enough to be like, Hey, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Or I, I see some, some dangerous patterns in your life. Um, and, and that's a real gift. And if you don't have anybody, if nobody in your life ever tells you something's wrong, then you don't have any good friends. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anyway, sorry, my, (laughs) I I have a child. Okay. Okay, baby, you can take tape upstairs. And do you see that we're sitting here with microphones? So can you please not interrupt again until we're done? And you can absolutely do that. The amount of cuteness (laughs) is overwhelming. I mean, just the voice alone is just, it's too much. I can't handle it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, this has been long, I think. Who knows how long this has lasted at this point? I, I'm confused. But before we wrap it up for today, there's a million more things we could say. But before we wrap it up for today, can we just talk about what we've been thinking about? Um, yes, about what we're preaching uh, in terms of our, our preaching plan for November. I'm so excited about that. So we're preaching a series together. Well, in o- we're preaching October the series in October and in November. November. Yes. Um, but we were working on that last week. And... Um, and for November, for three weeks in November, because the fourth week of November is the first week of Advent, which is inside baseball talk. But anyway, it's a three-week series in November, really talking about um, the spiritual discipline of gratitude. Um, and I am excited about that. I do think that it's a tool um, that is useful to us always, but particularly in times um, when it is not natural. Um, and so it is... Um, sort of counterintuitive to give thanks to God in seasons of great um, tiredness and despair, um, which I think a lot of us are in. Um, But that is a time when it is especially life-giving. And so we're going to do a three-week series on gratitude. And I'm excited that, you know, the first week we're going to do looking back to thank God and using the story of the Ebenezer Stone to talk about how we want to... look back and notice and thank God for all the ways that we've been delivered in, in the past, um, both individually and collectively as people. Um, and then the second week we're going to do look around to thank God and talking about how being intentional about looking for the gifts and graces in our lives and just really not just being like, yeah, yeah, I'm thankful, but noticing them and savoring them, um, just helps us with the challenges and conflicts in our life in a different way. So we're looking at Philippians for that. And then in the third week, we're going to do looking ahead to thank God and looking at some of um, the promises of redemption um, and the kingdom come in revelation 21 and in, and in Ezekiel 47 in the temple. And so just talking about like, Hey, as we walk through this hard season, we can thank God for the end of the story, which we already know, which then does transform the way that we're able to walk in these days. So anyway, we're doing that, which is fun and deep theological work. And? And we've been thinking about and exciting about, like, there's no law against joy and happiness um, in 
in the body of Christ. Like it is like, it's just, it's real and it's ultimate, but it doesn't have to be so serious all the time. Right. Like the battle is over. And so what we do matters and also nothing ultimate is at stake anymore. And so I think just that kind of lightheartedness is in itself revelatory. And so in that line, we are going to have between our two congregations, a little competition, a little friendly competition. We're going to turn a spiritual discipline into a competition because <laughs> which may I'm be twisted. a little problematic. I'm twisted. And this was, I mean, I mean, I think it probably goes without saying like a thousand percent my idea um, that. Um, so what we're going to do with our congregations as a um, practical application of this particular sermon series is, is invite people to literally write down different things that they are thanking God for yes. and then submit those lists to the congregations. And we're going to keep a running tally of how many times we can thank God in this season, the goal being 10,000, like, can we, as relatively small churches, can we thank God specifically uh, 10, and intentionally 10,000 ways? I mean, that's where it came from, yep. um, in these three weeks, in this three week period. And, and how will that be transformative and changing? And then also a little competition a little to competition. see whose congregation, um, like, like Paul collecting the offering for the saints in Jerusalem, right? Out. Like a Work little, Work a little bit of competition to encourage Work the saints. Out. So we're going to have a competition between our congregations to see who can thank God more in those three weeks. And um, if we're going to have a friendly wager between us as pastors, so like if the Grove wins, then... I will be able to, I mean, we'll decide what this is, but Yolando, you know, his penalty will be to do something that I pick, like run a 5K or I, I mean, I don't know what it is. And then if, if Derrida wins, then I, there would be some penalty some, that yeah. I would have to pay. So I don't know what that is. And so the reason we've been thinking about it, we're excited about preaching it. And then we just thought like we would talk about it today on the podcast for our tens of listeners so that if anybody wanted to help us come up with really good ideas to challenge the other, um, that would be great. Because I don't know, like I want it to be fun, um, but I do kind of want it to annoy you. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> so I don't know, wrong. I don't know what that, that would be. So wrong. Um, well, you want the same thing. Don't act like you're over I there saying that. I do not have a habit of thinking about how to cause my friends pain. And so I, I have no idea what to. Which is why you're seeking help. Right. True. Yes. True. And you, if you have an idea, you can leave a comment. You can leave your idea. If you're listening to this podcast on SoundCloud, you can uh, leave your idea in the comment section and we'll pick it up. Or in a minute when we say how you can get in touch with oh, us, that is true. you can just yes. let us know. But like, I know that there are people who listen who know Yolando super well and who could give me some insight on like we're not cruel, not mean, and all thank you, you for know, saying that. All things um, that can can you know whatever. It's all lighthearted, good-hearted fun. I was gonna right? I was gonna emphasize a friendly. This is a friendly thing, all of which to glorify Jesus. But I think Jesus likes a good um, joke, like yeah, a good a, a good prank. Come I think on. Jesus can appreciate. You know, well, I mean, like I'm thinking like something inspired by all the great stories about like, you know, people in fantasy football leagues who like, did you see the story that was all over the Internet a while ago about a fantasy football league and whoever lost had to like sit in a Waffle House for 24 hours? Oh, and yeah. I mean, just yeah. like something well, it's like when 
you know, mayors of two different cities when their ball teams Correct. play, you have like, to wear the Basically jersey. what we're saying is this is the preaching Super Bowl. There you That's go. what we're saying. Wow. Right. Okay. All right. Sure. Yeah. I'll um, take that. For sure. No, no grandiose delusions <laughs> in our friendship. So if you have any ideas, let us know. But we do want it to be something that would just um, help um, something that just helps people engage and really and increase the joy participate this is fun. The, yeah increase the joy and also like a little nudge to actually participate in the actual process of giving thanksgiving and thanksgiving as a spiritual discipline not as a holiday and the reality is like knowing you quote should be grateful I mean whatever that's fine but if it doesn't lead you to practice gratitude then it's then it's, right. it's just one more burden. Um, so, and that's just not really, it is one of those things which is not unusual. There are just many spiritual practices that make a tremendous difference, although they never seem like they will, right? And so we neglect to do a lot of things because they're simple and because they are easy. And we just think, well, that wouldn't make any difference. So we don't try and and then we don't experience um, the harvest, right? So like... Naaman saying, well, I'm not going to go dunk myself seven times in the river, Jordan, because that's dumb. <laughs> and, and we got rivers back home. We got, and, and, you know, anyway, so yes, if you can help us think of something that we could um, challenge slash threaten the other with to get our congregations motivated to, to participate, um, we would love your input and we will not be bound by it. So <laughs> thanks. Um, so I am going to be out of the pulpit this week because I'm going to um, be in Louisville um, at a memorial service for my father. Mm. Um, and so um, our friend Nicole is actually preaching at the Grove, one of our elders at the Grove on Matthew 5. So I am looking forward to um, worshiping virtually with the congregation and being fed by that. And you are preaching. Preaching the same text mm -hmm. and... Um at first, I have to confess, I was not looking forward to preaching this I know. text. I talked you into it. Yes, on um, you know, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was talking about do not worry, and I was like, okay, you know, so you stand up and tell tell people not to worry. We already know this. And as I was reading the text, it, what came to me, and I'm going to assume it's the Holy Spirit. It's like, oh, this is not about telling people not to worry because we know this. This is what I see in the text is a lot of why and how not to worry. It's like, oh, this is what I need to offer people. It's it's a way. There's a, there's a way here. It's not simply telling them not to do it, but here's how to not worry. Mm -hmm. I really feel like I said a lot of really brilliant things, and I remember you being like, oh, you're talking me into it. But sure, go with your version, because I don't even really remember what I said. Um, we need to stop podcasting because clearly we've been doing this so long that my filter is gone and I'm going to get myself in trouble. So if you want to know more about what the Holy Spirit and the saints at Derida are up to, please check out their website at deridaprez.org, which is D-E-R-I-T-A prez, P-R-E-S dot O-R-G. And if you want to listen to the back catalog of Yolando's message, you can go to their Podbean webs podcast, <laughs> the Derida Church podcast. 
on Podbean is the host set. And if you want to be part of their worship service, you can go to service at 1030 on Sunday mornings in your mask, or you can um, worship on their YouTube channel with them. Yes. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can listen to old messages from The Grove on our podcast, which is The Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Or you can worship with us in person at 10 in your mask, which covers your nose and mouth. Or or you don't have to wear a mask and you can worship with us on the live stream. And that counts. And we would love to have you with us. And that is on um, our Facebook page, The Grove Charlotte. Look for the green tree. Thank you for listening to us. And um, we'll talk to you next week. 